Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I originally recorded this episode in Montreal, Canada at the Just for Laughs Festival. I just want to let you know that what I recorded I am not going to use and I am recording something different right now for a very specific reason because... We just lost one of the most wonderful, sweet, kind, gentle, generous, helpful, funny, unique, authentic, original, and extraordinary comedians that I've ever had the pleasure to be around. And I'm talking about Ralphie May, who just passed away of cardiac arrest. He was 45 years old. And normally when I do these cold opens, I like to do them right face-to-face or right around the same time. But I think it should be noted that I don't think Alonzo Bowden will be upset if I let the audience know that I see great similarities in Alonzo Bowden and Ralphie May and great differences. And I'm going to share with you what they are in this brief cold open. Ralphie May and Alonzo Bowden share great similarities. They were all the things that I just mentioned. Every comic that I know of roots for Alonzo Bowden and was rooting for Ralphie May. The difference between the two is... One comedian chose to live his life in a way that was more healthy 
and to make sure that his mind was just as sound as his body. The other comedian, Ralphie May, I don't think anybody who knew Ralphie when they heard that he passed away was surprised. Everybody knew that Ralphie lived a life on the edge. His weight was two, three, sometimes four times the size of a normal person. And even though his comedy was tight, strong, powerful, just like Alonzo Bowden's comedy, one person decided long ago to quit drinking, to live a healthy lifestyle, and to never look back. And the other person decided not to. We lost a great person in Ralphie May. When I look at Alonzo Bowden, I think of a guy who's still around because he chose a different lifestyle. And those two were always kind to everybody. Always the best. No one ever said, God, Alonzo Bowden, Ralphie May, these guys are assholes. Never. You were always glad to see both of them. Always thrilled to be around them. And always when you left, you felt like you were a better person. So in the end, the thought process here for everybody out there, whatever job you're in, is make sure that the people in your workplace respect you. Make sure they know that you're always willing to help anybody and that you're always willing to do things in an original and unique way and that you always leave the room better than when you came in. But also know that it makes no difference if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't make sure that you live a healthy lifestyle, if you don't make sure that you don't take things or ingest things in your body that are going to make you less likely to live a long and healthy and prosperous life. And in the end, if you figure out all those things, I can guarantee you, you'll have the possibility of having the kind of career that Alonzo Bowden has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Very excited here at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. We're going to have a great time with one of the greatest and nicest comedians around, Alonzo Bowden. And without further ado, let's give him the proper introduction. And hopefully we'll all be awake after. Alonzo Bowden is best known for being the winner of the Emmy-nominated television series Last Comic Standing on Season 3. 
He is a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Comedy Congress, as well as being a panelist on the game show network's Mind of a Man. In 2011, he starred in the comedy special Who's Paying Attention on Showtime and released a DVD and hosts a podcast of the same name. His first big break came right here in Montreal at the New Faces of Comedy at the Just for Laughs Festival. He has traveled around the world entertaining the U.S. troops from Iraq to Greenland more times than he and I can count. He's also made numerous rounds on the late-night television circuit, including appearances on The Tonight Show, Conan O'Brien, The Late Late Show, and The Keenan Ivory Wayne Show. His film credits include Scary Movie 4, The Girl Next Door, and Bringing Down the House with Queen Latifah and one of the greatest geniuses of comedy, Steve Martin. Please welcome my guest today, a guy I'm very excited to introduce. It's such an honor to have him here. Please welcome Alonzo Bowden. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. I don't know if you remember our history or the first time we met up here, but I'll always remember it. It was the day I did New Faces. It was 1997. And I had I had a killer set. I had one killer joke where I said that um, I don't like hockey. And of course they booed because it's Ken. And I told the audience, shut up. I said, I don't like hockey because the only thing black is the puck. And every time I looked, they're hitting it with a stick, right? And the joke killed. And, and this was when they were making deals up there. And I was with Rick Rogers. And you came down and I, like, we had crossed paths, like I knew who you were. This is when you were repping Jay Moore and I had opened for Jay and stuff like that. And you like congratulated me for becoming a comic. Like that, that was, that's what stayed with me. There were certain people there that night that I had been doorman at the Laugh Factory. And again, I, you, you don't remember all this because this was, this was just another day for you, but starting out for me. But that was your acknowledgement of me as a comic meant something because I knew who you were from managing, you know, your clients at the Laugh Factory and stuff. So we got history here, Barry. I was proud of you that day because what a lot of people don't know about you is that you were a doorman at the comedy club at the Laugh Factory. Not just a doorman, but the guy who was there to be a bouncer as well right. and <laughs> keep trouble away. And most of the people who were doormen, just to put it in perspective to the audience... The chances of a doorman getting to be a respected stand-up comic are about as great as a warm-up comic becoming a great, successful stand-up comic. Yeah, well, the thing was, I never intended to be the doorman because, <laughs> you know, um, Jamie had that thing where you go in and you line up for the open mic. Like, you got to be there at noon and get in line for the open mic that started at eight o'clock that night. And if you left, you lost your spot in line. So you had to wait outside all day. And I did my spot and Jamie was like, yeah, you're very funny. He said, listen, I need a doorman. So if you'll be the doorman, I'll give you spots when comics don't show up. So I was at the door every night hoping comics didn't show up. <laughs> and how often did that happen? It actually happened about once a week. Yeah, about once a week I got to hit the stage, but it was it was like going to school because this is when George Wallace was there all the time, Dom Herrera was there all the time, and this is back when like Rodney would drop in. I remember that when Damon Wayans 
had he had done Damon's last stand and said he was going to stop doing stand up, which of course wasn't going to happen. And he came in every night for a month just working on new material to do to get back into stand up. So for me, that was like yeah, it was like an education just being there and watching the 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 big names at the time, the biggest names come in and work on material. Who was the comedian that? came in during that time you were a doorman that when you watched him you almost wanted to cry and say i'm never going to be that funny you know i don't know if um i saw shows like that but i don't know if there was a person like that i i saw in other words i saw sets that were incredible i remember seeing um chris rock just come in and do an incredible set. But the guy who I used to watch, who I revered, was George Wallace. Because George always came in with the pad and there was always new material. And he told me, he said, you always gotta be writing. And and I remember, to this day, I quote him jokes that he told back then. Like he's like, how do you, and it was like, man, I, w- I learned so much watching him because he was a machine. and that, And that's what I learned. You know, just watching him um, come in and out. But but yeah, watching brilliant sets. Rich Jenny. Rich Jenny had... Rich Jenny was... I tell people like it was seamless. Like you'd watch Rich Jenny and he'd go through four topics, but you didn't know how he got from one to another because it was just seamless the way he wrote them. And the, the other side of that was Larry Miller who could do 20 minutes on one premise. You know, so like I said, it was an education. I got to see all these different guys do it different ways. You know, um, genius uh, Damon was Damon was genius. Damon was genius watching one line become a bit like watching one idea grow. Because like I said, he was just in and out, you know, for a month, just coming in and, and working out, thinking out loud and developing stuff. So. Yeah, but yeah, individual sets, there were guys who it was, different people would come in on a given night and do just an, you'd see just an amazing set. There's just these guys that we all know that within 30 seconds of being on stage, a bomb could drop in the back of the room. And if you're in front of the bomb watching the comedian, you wouldn't hear it or know it existed. Um, that that's a great and that's a great way to describe it. If there's a bomb going off, you wouldn't hear the bomb. If there was an incredible chick, if Halle Berry walked by, you wouldn't turn your head like that. That kind of funny. Dom was one of them. Dom Herrera. Dom was one of them. Dom walked on stage, <laughs> and his opening line would kill. Like he would just say something, and and it would kill. The one I always remember. There was a, a little person, right? Can't say midget. Be nice. The little person in the front row, and Dom just walked on stage and looked at him. Said, "Shouldn't you be guarding a bridge?" <laughs> we were done. We were done. We were done. The room was done. It was the. It was. <laughs> and he did it as almost like a throwaway line, you know? Oh man, that was so. That was so, you know, I mean, that that's what kind of funny it was. It was like 20 years ago, and I still remember. It's like, yeah, that's the greatest opening line of all time has been done just now. Shouldn't you be guarding a 
outreach. Dom gets away with saying horrible things to people <laughs> for whatever reason. That's part of being Dom. So that that would be one. I remember, and again, it's not comics, it's sets that I remember. I remember a set. It was at the old, there used to be an improv in Santa Monica. Tommy Davidson and Chris Rock were touring together. I think this was like right after Le, um, Lynn Living Color when they were both riding that. So they're co-headlining. Tommy comes out, and you know, Tommy can do all these different voices and everything else. And this is this is in the <laughs> mid-90s, so there's a, a brother there got a jerry curl. I mean, just a dripping jerry curl, right? And Tommy starts this thing about the compound in his hair, about the jerry curl juice in his hair, and giving it superpowers, right? So now, somehow we get to where the jerry curl juice is bulletproof. And like animals, like deer, want the jerry curl juice because they're being hunted and the bullets are bouncing. And you know, Tommy's all over the place. And like Chris, literally Chris had to come drag Tommy off the stage <laughs> because the audience, we couldn't breathe. We were just like, and he, but he just kept doing it. He had that compound on your table, protecting your drinks. <laughs> and you know, like you was, you was a crip and you got shot, but you had the compound, <laughs> you turn your head, <laughs> ping, it bullets <laughs> bounce off. And it was just, and, and, but watching him do that, it was like, man, you know, you just, cause you, cause you're new, right? I'm still in that. I want to work on weekends phase of my career, right? That's because we were, do, me and uh, Eric Griffin were talking about this the other day. Like when you start out, the idea of working a weekend, you're like, man, I'm going to work Saturday one day, right? You know, because you're the, you're the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday guy. You know, you don't mess around with weekends. And to watch him do that was, yeah, that was, that was an incredible set. Um, watching Chris Rock... The first time I heard Chris Rock say this was long before Bring the Pain. It was some set. It was like I said, when him and Tommy were working together, because I opened for Tommy various times back then. This had to be 94, 95 maybe. And um, Chris Rock said something about there's a civil war between niggers and black people. And just like it was just the idea then. This is before, way before Bring the Pain. And it was like, wow like what and like you you were like i wish i thought of that you know what i mean because because you just knew as a comic and as a person you're like this well as a black person definitely this is absolutely true and but then and then years later when he did it on bring the pain i was like i i saw that when it was just an idea like now you'd say well i saw it on youtube four years ago but back then you know there was no youtube or anything you just heard a comic throw out a premise in a club when he's developing it and then you see it on an HBO special and that HBO special makes the guy the funniest man in America you know which I always thought I always thought bring the pain was the bar for doing an HBO special like that's the greatest special if you can do a special that airs on Saturday and you're the funniest person in the world on Monday that's a special when you can do a special on a Saturday 18 years ago and it's still the funniest special in the world <laughs> on monday 18 years later yeah yeah and every single stand-up comic in the world if you polled them would at least put that special in the top five. Oh, absolutely there's a reason why dave Chappelle has no social media 
He didn't even say anything. His shows go up at Radio City Music Hall. It sells out in a second because the legacy of the Chappelle show being one of the funniest shows ever that still holds up to this day, that Comedy Central is still airing, <laughs> makes it one of the funniest shows ever all those years later. And that's why he doesn't have to tell anybody, he doesn't have to tweet. I mean, Dave, when you talk about Dave, you're talking about that. You're talking about, um, they talked about it in the awards show yesterday, Mount Rushmore. Dave's a Mount Rushmore guy. I mean, you know, in talking about Bring the Pain, which was brilliant, Killing Him Softly, which never got that, you know, and it's funny, it's almost like Dave, like it's low key, it's like below the radar for a lot of people haven't seen Killing Him Softly and one of the greatest specials ever done. But, you know, I always said, and this is, as, as a person, a great guy too. I mean, just a really great guy. But I always said it was unfair because Dave looked funny before he said anything. Just when he walked on stage, he has sort of that loping gait and that little, little smirk, smile. You know what I mean? Like before he, like if you're just in the audience, you're not a comic. And even if you never heard of him and he just came out, you'd be like, this guy's funny. You know, he and... Yeah, and delivers on it. You're, yeah, the, the the Chappelle show, yeah, that will go down in history as one of the greatest shows of all time. And and people, we don't just know the show; we know episodes. We know, you know, we were we were talking about it up here about Montreal. Montreal boobs are like those great New York boobs. Like we were like he could have done that right out here, you know? Yeah, it's. It's among among comics, I think it's more revered because we know what it takes to do that. You know, versus the audience loves it, but when you're doing it and you that's the one of those it's like it's like playing basketball, right? Like you could play as much as you want, whatever, whatever. You're not gonna be Jordan because you can't fly. Like that that's the first thing. Like, okay, can you fly? Because if you can't jump from the free throw line to the rim, half this game, you're not going to be, you know what I mean? No matter how good you are, you have to be born with it, right? Dave was born with something that people don't have, you know? So, it, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of those guys. I'm, I, I love the art. I love the art, and I'm a fan of the masters of the art. George Carlin, all of it, and I'm like, I'm going to say I'm vaguely in that vein, right? The the political, social, this, you know, um, state of humanity, whatever you want to call it. Um, nobody could do it like Carlin. Nobody, nobody got human behavior and could explain it the way Carlin did and the way Carlin saw through it, whether it was belief in religion or how you behave in traffic. He just understood humans and it was, and you can't do that. You can, you know, I mean, when I say you can't do that, like the, he just had something, he saw something, he got something that other comics, we try and we, and there's, you know, a lot of great comics, but what certain people can do is just another level. Tell me times in your life where, you're at the clubs or you're at festivals and you're hanging out with people that live their lives differently than you. 
comedians who party hard you know they're doing heavy hard stuff but you're hanging with them knowing that you're a guy who's relatively sober are there times where you actually walk away from a conversation or hanging out with somebody throughout the years and you go back to your room and before you put your head to the pillow you say to yourself that guy's gonna die soon and i can't do anything about it I'm not relatively sober, like I'm completely sober. It's been 29 years in recovery, and I've never done comedy loaded. I had five years of sobriety when I started comedy. But when I used, I used the headset, like I was a crackhead. You know, I I drank, I smoked, did cocaine, smoked crack. Been down that whole road. When I see or know a comic doing it, I'm not gonna tell them not to. I'm not gonna tell them they have to stop. It's their choice. Um, I sometimes I'll see that could have been me, right? But but it's not it's not the serious ones like that as much as like when you're here and you're in the bar at the Hyatt, you know, doing the thing, and it's two thirty three in the morning, and they're smashed again every night. Like I know what it's like to wake up from that, right? So that's what I don't have to do. I don't have to wonder what I did last night, what I said last night, what I, you know, and so on. And I, and it's, and I can get up and do press. So (laughs) that part's okay. But on the serious thing, there are some comics that, yeah, they might be killing themselves, but I can't interfere. Like the thing about being an alcoholic or an addict or whatever, you, you hit your own bottom. Believe me, you know, when you're doing it, when you're at that level, let's take a Mitch Hedberg, for example, or Greg Giraldo. And you've hung out with them many times. You've I worked with Mitch. With Greg, I, I, yeah, Greg, I knew. I don't want to say they're ashamed, but it's a hidden, it's not oh, like man. alcohol or anything like that. So it's not verbalized, but Alonzo, addicts and people who are intuitive, they know what's happening. Do you ever confront them and say, what are you doing? No, no, you can't. See, this is what I know. And it, and and I'll tell you why alcohol is the same. Because it's miserable. See, they're not getting high. You're not getting high. When you're at that point in addiction, you have to do it. And it's the worst place to be. This is how it was right before I got sober. I had to drink. I had to hit the pipe. I wasn't getting high. I had to do it. It was the only way I knew how to live. It's 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 coping. It's it's whatever. And you know it. So the level of misery is beyond anything you can imagine. So it, the, the, the front, the cover up is making it look like it's a party. It's not. It's a it's a miserable, painful existence. And a guy like Greg, who, again, I didn't know real well. I'm not going to sit up here and say we were best buddies or anything. But I know the pain. Greg tried to get in recovery numerous times. And there's nothing worse than, you know, you got, you want to get sober and people are like, man, you got a, you got a family or you got a wife or you got a career or you got, and, and if I'm the addict or the alcoholic, I know that. I know it better than you, what I'm throwing away and what I'm destroying. But what happens in that moment, and, and to your listeners, if you're not us, you, you may not understand this, but... It's one moment you get that craving and if you succumb to that craving, you don't know how it's going to end. 
and like for them it ended the worst way possible you know what i mean but you're it's you don't want to do it and and you crave it at the same time like when they talk about comics and and depression which i'm so tired of that discussion you know and we could talk about that but i'm, I'm but that craving takes over and there's nothing you can do about it now when you talk about the hidden thing what's going on now with the pills and the the uh, prescription drugs is so much worse because when you're if you're taking drugs you can see it people can see it if you're shooting heroin on a regular basis your body breaks down it shows you know if you're if you're doing cocaine on a regular basis you don't eat right so it shows people are hooked on these opioid pills and they are killing themselves and nobody can see it because it's a pill that comes from the pharmacy it's worse it, the addiction is worse and it's more hidden. But what's behind the addiction, the misery behind the addiction is the same thing. As a comic, at least you have an artistic outlet for the misery. You know, that would that and that's and that's a fear, right? A fear is that, you know, it's the same thing with with the uh, obesity. You know, it, there are com- people who are and I'm talking, you know, 400 pounds or more like and and they'll try to lose the weight, but their identity is in the weight. So they can't lose the weight, you know, or they lose the weight and they gain the weight back. And any anything like that, it's all the same. It's the same kind of um, underlying disease, thought, whatever you want to call it. You mentioned depression and you were tired of talking the subject, but... I'd be remiss if I didn't mention somebody who you considered to be one of the greatest comedians of all time that suffered from depression and mental illness, Richard Jenny. Yeah. For those of you who don't study depression and mental illness, a doctor doesn't diagnose you and say, okay, you're going to take this and this and it's going to work. It's trial and error. But the person who's going through it feels invincible and they don't want to go back. They don't want to take the medication. They don't want to take it when they say. And so oftentimes in this trial error situation, the medication is either too strong or too weak or has too many side effects. And the voices in that person's head get stronger and stronger. And before their next appointment with the doctor, those voices become so strong they take their own life. And I think that's what happened to Richard Jenny. Yeah, it was horrible what happened with Richard. And and that, you know, I this comes up, right? Whenever a great comic dies or commits suicide, they, they inter- interview comics. And I've said this before. Sadly, I'd never be surprised if you told me a comic killed himself. Because I think we all carry that depression somewhere that negative side what you're talking you about think jerry carries a depression well okay most of us <laughs> i don't know him i and it's so funny that i've never met two two huge famous comics that i've never met jerry seinfeld and louis ck for whatever reason never cross paths never and and i'm good friends with george wallace jerry's best friend but i've never met jerry you know but anyway um the thing about that depression and the medication and like you said they experiment how much med- you know do you need this much of this one or that much of that one one of the problems and this problem is also a problem that alcoholics and addicts have is you have a disease okay or a dysfunction or whatever you want to call it 
one of the symptoms is your brain telling you that you don't have it. You know what I mean? So, so like if you have, if you have cancer, your brain never says, Hey, you don't have cancer. You're fine. Have another cigarette. No, you know, you have cancer. You can't breathe or you, you know, or your body's eating away. It's a, well, if you suffer from depression or addiction or something, part of it is telling you you're fine. And the thing about medications and, and I've heard this from doctors and people taking them is if you get it right and now you're okay, now you're like, well, I'm okay. So I don't need the medication anymore, you know? Um, a few years ago, I gave my brother a kidney, four years, four years ago, and I was laughing. He had to take all these drugs. It was, there was like 15 pills a day, like, you know, the, the weekly thing that you'll see senior citizens have with their pills. His looked like a fishing tackle box. It was like, you gotta take this one at this time, this one after, and the reason is, he said, you feel so good when you get the new kidney because your kidney's done you you don't you know people don't take the medication and he's like that's and then their new kidney fails after a year you have to take the medication even when you feel okay and i that may be what happened with richard jenny i mean the thing about that thing about any suicide right we don't know what was in your mind in that moment you know what i mean like when you picked up the gun or took the pills or however you kill yourself there's that one moment right before and nobody knows what was in your head. So nobody knows if, if somebody could have said something or whatever. So I don't know what it was with Rich Jenny, but yeah, that's one of the sad things about, and one of the impossible things about depression or addiction is it's telling you, you don't have it. Or if you're in the midst of it and you're in the worst of it, it's telling you there's no hope. It will never be different. That's, you know, it's a symptom of the disease. And again, that's what makes it different than any other, than any physical ailment. When, you're, when your brain is telling you, either one of those extremes is horribly dangerous. Your brain telling you that everything's okay and it's really not okay. Or your brain telling you, and I know this feeling, I absolutely hit this, when I hit my bottom, this is where I was. It will never get better. It will, I mean, from where I was, Barry, from my bottom to where, where I am today is unimaginable. Unimaginable. I didn't have this. I never dreamed of being a comic. This, this is, I live a dream that I didn't have before I got sober. What happened the hour before you said to yourself, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and yeah. I'm done and now I'm starting a new life. What happened? Something had to have happened. I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was working at Lockheed Aircraft. This is when I was still an airplane mechanic and I was getting loaded and I was missing work, blah, blah, blah. And I was going to get fired for missing work. Oddly, one of the things you find out in recovery and we joke about it, but it really is true. Addicts and alcoholics tend to be very talented people at what they do. Part of that is because you need that money from what you do to maintain your addiction. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, this is all in your head that you don't even realize things that are going on because it's all part of the survival mechanism. So anyway, so I went to rehab with the intention of keeping my job. You got to remember, this was a big company, okay? When, at the time in the 80s, Lockheed employed 20,000 people. It was a small city. And one of the things that they had, and, and many big companies had it and, and so on, 
they had a, a counselor and you go in and you say, hey, I got a problem. But you never and admitted you had a problem before. Why this time did you admit Because it? I was gonna lose my job. So you, I went in and I said, I got a problem. And they send you to rehab, right? They send you a 30 day rehab. And they pay for and, it. Yeah, um, but I wasn't there to get sober. I was there to keep a job. So I lasted for two weeks, went back to getting loaded, got laid off by Lockheed which is good because now my record's still clean. I didn't get fired, you know, they just downsized. And um, I had another job lined up and I got arrested, I got busted. And I'd never been busted, I'd been incredibly lucky, right? I, I just dodged that bullet for umpteen years. And you know, there's a saying in recovery that you're powerless over drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, right? And when I had the handcuffs on in the back of the police car, it just hit me like this is not where my life was meant to be. Like every, in other words, everything in my life, my experience, education, the way I was raised, everything else, I was not meant to be in the back of that police car wearing the handcuffs, right? And it was a situation I couldn't bullshit myself anymore. Or it, like this is real. And that was when I hit my bottom, that was it for me and um, the next day I got out of jail. Uh, I got drunk because I didn't know what else to do because it was a Sunday. And then the Monday I went back to the rehab place I had been in and you know went at it with the intention that I want to get sober and I've been sober ever since. Amazing. And that was, that. so that was my moment. Now in the 29 years you've been sober Tell our audience the closest moment that you came to taking a drink or a drug in those 29 years. What pushed you to that point where you could see yourself almost uh, doing it, it? It was in my first year. It was at somewhere around nine or 10 months and things weren't, in my mind, things weren't happening fast enough. In other words, I wasn't getting back on track. I, you know, work, money, whatever it was, it wasn't happening fast enough and I was like, why am I, why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there was um, this woman, this friend of mine who saw me, I was, I was leaving a, a meeting and she saw something in me that she knew something was wrong and she sat me down and, she, we, and I can't tell you what she said or what we talked about or whatever, but whatever it was, she talked me through that moment, right? And that was it, and then, then I stayed sober. And since then, there hasn't been that moment, there hasn't been that desire, because one of the things that they drilled into my head was like, if you, if you make a choice to get loaded again, you're making a choice to give up everything in your life, right? Make, make no mistake, Barry, like the reason that I'm not tempted when I'm in the bar after a show or whatever, because that's not how I drank. I didn't drink socially. I drank with a purpose. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't, I, there, there's no such thing as social crack use. We're not gonna smoke a little crack and then play dominoes. <laughs> you understand? We're not, you know, it, it's, I'm, I'm an addict and an alcoholic, man. If I go, I'm all the way gone. So. I don't want to be all the way gone anymore. So that's why when, when other, I see other people doing it, comics and stuff like that, like it doesn't bother me because 90% of them are having fun. There's 10% of them 
that have a serious problem, but if they do, they'll find they'll find the answer. And and I have run into comics in recovery, like when they're you know they've come to a meeting and then they see me, they're like, oh wow, and I'm like, yeah, I've been here. And then we talk because now you want to be here. I can't talk to you in a bar. I can't talk to you, you know, taking pills. But when you put that down and you stop and you want to stay stopped, then I can say, hey, man, I know exactly how it was. And this is what we do now. And this is how, you know, and then you find out there's a whole life after that. Right. There's a whole world after that. But um, that's how it works. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way, way back. Okay, take me back to where you grew up, your mom, dad, your siblings, the family dynamic, the socioeconomic situation, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Um, I grew up in an area called St. Albans, Queens, 
working class black neighborhood in New York. Um, we didn't know it was the hood until 50 Cent mentioned it in a song. We were like, I, I didn't know. I grew up, we had a house, we had a two car garage with two cars in it. We had a lawn out front, seemed okay to me. <laughs> but anyway, um, yes, yeah, so that's where I grew up. I was, uh, I went to white elementary and junior high schools. I joked that I was bused to a white neighborhood before it was an issue. <laughs> So, but no, I'm grateful for that because I absolutely got a better education because those schools were better. I mean, it, these are the realities that they deny exist on Fox News, all right? <laughs> white schools in white neighborhoods get more money than schools in, in minority neighborhoods and the schools are better and you get a better education and it gives you a leg up. I mean, that's just the truth. And that was just luck of the draw that I got that. I ended up going to aviation high school learned to uh, fix airplanes, got my licenses to fix airplanes. And when I graduated, I was hired by Lockheed in Burbank and I moved to LA and started my life. My parents, my dad was sanitation, department of sanitation guy, um, started out driving the street sweeper, where it made his way up to garage foreman. Um, a very stoic guy, not a lot of emotion, the, the love was shown by taking care of us, providing for the family. Um, my mother, absolutely where I got my sense of humor from. My mom is hilarious. My mom would always be just cracking jokes or making little sayings or, or whatever. She grew up in South Carolina, so it was kind of a combination of the that old Southern wisdom with a touch of New York smartass. Uh, and, and anyone who meets my mom they're like, yep, that's where you got it from. She, she's funny. I lost my dad about eight years ago, but still got my mom. She's still funny, and I love her to death. I, I started training people. This is, again, I'm sober for a few years. I'm back in the aerospace business. I started training new mechanics, and they say that a public speaking is the biggest fear people have. It never occurred to me. It was the most natural thing in the world when I stood up in front of the class and started talking and I could make them laugh, telling them stories about airplanes and working and stuff like that. And I, after a year of doing that, I said, man, I want to be a comic. Like, But I didn't know how comics wrote material. I'd only been to a comedy club once. Granted, I, when I went, I saw one of the best because I went to the Comedy Act Theater and saw Robin Harris so it was like, yeah, I happened to go once and saw a master. The know? Comedy Act Theater was the first, I'd say, urban comedy club in Los Angeles yeah. with bullet holes on the door. And Robin owned that place. That's right. Robin was, was just a force, which I didn't even know at that time because I was just a guy in the audience. But anyway, um, I wanted to do it. And I took this comedy writing class with a, it's funny you mentioned Rich Jenny, Len Ostrovich, who wrote for Rich Jenny, who you may have known back Of course, then. from Chicago. Yeah, he taught this class, and I took the class because I didn't know how, there were two things I didn't know. I didn't know how to write material. I didn't know how comics came up with material, and I also, I didn't want to be the only person doing it for the first time, because if you just walk in on an open mic, you know. So it was like a six week course and you wrote five minutes. And when I did the five minutes, the one thing he never taught us was what do you do when people laugh? Cause we had an audience, you know, cause everyone brings their friends and family. So there's probably about 100, 150 people and they laughed. And I'm like, 
standing on stage like, oh shit, like what do I do? What do you know? Because he didn't, nobody ever said, yeah, you got to give him time to laugh. And that was it. From the first time I did it, I had no doubt it was what I was going to do. I had no doubt. I got laid off from McDonnell Douglas, which I knew had been coming. And I said, I'm not going to work on airplanes again. I'm only going to pursue this. And that's how, that's how I started. Your first big break in comedy. Just for laughs. New Faces of Comedy, without a doubt. That was when I, that's when I became a comic. I came up here. In Montreal? Yeah, right here. Yeah. And um, I got a deal. And the deal gave me enough money to quit my day job. And, but it was that, but I always say more importantly, or at least equally important, was I became a comic when like Dom Herrera hosted. And Dom, you know, everyone looked at me differently after New Faces. They, now I'm in the fraternity. Now I'm not, now you're not a wannabe comic, you are a comic. And that, that was a big, that was a huge step to be accepted like that. I always said lawyers, they always say, what are you doing? I'm practicing law. I always thought comedians, just, what are you doing? I'm practicing comedy. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. But uh, it's an art, so I guess it's a little different. But but that was my big, that was my first big break. I mean, I you know, I had other things like the first time you get paid and stuff like that. But that was the first big break. First big television break? What happened? First, uh, first television was BET just like every other black comic in the nineties. <laughs> and what had happened, I was opening for Tommy Davidson. Um, like I said, this was maybe 94, 95 or whatever. And the people from BET saw me with Tommy as an opener and they were like, hey, you want to do Comic View? And you went to the Normandy Casino and you did, it was like four minutes or whatever it was. And you got paid 150 bucks. They had a person in the back of the room just giving you your check after you do the set. Yeah, that was my first time on TV. And the funny thing about that was I was dating this girl at the time and her mother didn't like me. Her mother like, what? He does what? He's a comic, he's not a comic, I never heard of him. I never saw him on TV. And I did BET and she saw me on TV and she was like, she loved me after that. She was like, ah, he's a comic, you know, yeah. So um, yeah, that was my first time on TV. I did it twice. I did it once with DL as the host, and then I did it with Cedric was the host. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. You can tell me one word. You can tell me a sentence. You can tell me a short story, anything that comes to your mind about somebody. All right. Keenan Ivory Wayans. The Keenan Ivory Wayans show. Um, I did, I think I was the first comic on that show and they saw me in Montreal and yeah, and he had me on. Steve Martin. Bringing down the house. Uh, I got to, I played, uh, I know this is a stretch and you're not going to believe this, but I played the bouncer. <laughs> 
at the party at Steve Martin's house. I thought you played the guy under the bridge guarding it. See, the different the different role. No, I was playing the bouncer. So the scene is Steve's trying to get into a house party at his own house that Queen Latifah's throwing the party, and I'm stopping Steve from coming in. So Steve and the director are walking up, and I'm at the table with an extra, and the extra's like, oh, wow, Steve Martin, right? And Steve just looked up, I'm acting, right? That's all he said. And I'm and in my head, I'm like, oh, shit, okay. Like, note to self, don't bother Steve. Like, Steve is focused, blah, blah, blah. So later that day, I don't know, it's lunch or whatever, one of his assistants is like, oh, you're a comic? He's like, no, Steve loves comics. You could talk to, you can talk to Steve. So I'm like, you know, Steve Martin, like, wow, I'm a comic, love you. And I said to him, I said, man, you were, you were like the greatest and you gave it up. Like, do you ever miss it? Oh, I know he asked me what was my first line when I hit the stage. And I told him it, it changes because my act changes and he liked that. He was like, yeah, that's good, you know. So anyway, so um, I, he said, eh, I don't miss it. He said, I host things now and then. And I was like, really, what do you host? And he looks at me, he said, the Oscars. <laughs> and I looked right back at him, I said, who books that? And he cracked up. He cracked up laughing, and we were cool. We were cool after that. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Because I didn't even think about it. I didn't think about it. Yeah, this guy hosts the Oscars. The Oscars. That was a, yeah. You remember moments like that. Every comic has moments like that. I'll always remember that moment. I remember mm-hmm. Dane Cook goes out to lunch with Steve Martin, and I remember him telling me this story. It was just so subtle and so fantastic. He sits down with Steve, and Steve says, I brought something for you. And he had his musical CD, Steve <laughs> Martin, and he takes his fingers and he just slides it over to the table and says, I brought this little something for you. <laughs> and Dane looks at it and says, Thank you so much. And literally a minute later, Steve looks at him and says, did you listen to it yet? (laughs) (laughs) Watching Steve Martin at that movie, it was, it was amazing. He can do anything funny. That's the only way I could describe it. Anything that he had to do, he did it funny. Brilliant talent. Mike Berbiglia. Um, Great comic. Mike and I, we, uh, I hosted the awards show yesterday. Here in Montreal. Here, yeah, here in Montreal at the festival. And I was talking to Mike in the green room. And it was like, Mike, it's nice to me. He said, man, we met. We we crossed paths in like Cedar Rapids, Iowa one night or something like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know Mike, but that's the that's the relationship comics have. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, you know, you were you were the middle and I close or you so you know what I mean it's like one of those so that's my relationship with Mike my relationship with Mike is as a comic crossing paths at a comedy club brilliant guy and and I learned more about his story learning about how he does how he produced his own shows and and created it which I I absolutely love the fact he went his own way you want to learn how to do it right this is a guy who did his sets and got the fuck out of the room went back home and wrote. Yeah. And this guy, if you have never seen his work or have never seen his movies, he is the closest thing to a young Woody Allen that you'll ever see of this generation. I have an enormous amount of respect for him. Incredible. Trevor Noah. Um, another guy who 
I didn't really know Trevor. We crossed paths at comedy clubs. He he was like, man, I haven't seen you since the Ice House. I saw him at the Ice House. Um, he was also at the awards show yesterday, receiving an award. Um, saw him at the Ice House. Saw him at Gotham's. Just doing sets, crossing paths. And um, But yesterday, in the green room, joking around with him and in watching his acceptance speech, the the thing I got from him was the humility. That was a beautiful part of it, you know, the humility, because um, very funny, very successful. Internet, one of the international stars. I know a few of those guys who there, they were bigger everywhere in the world than the United States. You know, they were they were like doing arenas around the world, and they come to the United States and be at a comedy club, and you're like, who? What'd you do? Uh, um, yeah, great guy, Jim Carrey. Uh, a star. There are certain people who walk into a room and they are the star and you can tell. And that's the way it was when he walked into the green room yesterday. He has, I'm, I'm sure he had it before he became the movie star. You know what I mean? But he had that thing. It's funny. You mentioned Dane Cook. Dane was another one. Back when we were doing Dublin's, there was, you know, and this was before, right before Dane became Dane. And Dublin's and, was a room that was on Sunset Boulevard across from the comedy store. They did a Tuesday night show promoted by a comic by the name of Jay Davis from Tourgasm. And this was a room that if any comic were going to build the ideal room, this would be the antithesis of the room. <laughs> I mean, this was a room where a stage was in a corner where they took out booths. There was a bar literally within 12 feet of the stage, people in back of that standing. It didn't make sense that it would be something would work, but that was a room that Dane cut his teeth in and really made his mark in. That room, the creativity that came out of that room the, the guys who were in that, that was our, our open mic. That was our workout space and before any of us popped. So obviously Dane blew up the biggest, but me, Craig Robinson, Ken Jong, Bobby Lee, the, the list goes, uh, Joey, um, Uncle Joey. I mean, the list goes on and on of people you see now on TV and in movies who used to be at Dublin's. The people who used to go to Dublin's to this day come and they're like, Man, I can't believe we used to watch you guys every week. But when we were doing Dublin's, I always said about Dane, that guy's a rock star. Like, he's not a comic. He's a rock star. There, there was something different about him and about the way the crowd reacted to him. Well, Jim Carrey had that thing. Like, Jim Carrey was like, he's a movie star. I mean, uh, and but a nice guy. Like, that was the first time I ever met him, first time I ever interacted with him. I'll be playing a security guy in an upcoming film, you know, if he was listening. <laughs> Got it. The USO. Um, doing the military stuff for the USO and for some, some independent promoters, uh, I always love it. It's a great part of my career. Mutual admiration, particularly when you go to places, the more remote places, you know, when, when we were going to in the 90s, it was like going to Kuwait and Jordan and stuff like that. And then, of course, more recently going to Iraq. The, the troops appreciated us coming because we're a taste of the U.S. We're a taste of home. 
we're also allowed to say things they're not allowed to say. We're allowed to make fun of senior officers in a lot of bases because the senior officers would have a sense of humor and allow us to, you know, you not disrespect them, but make fun of them, joke about it. And, stuff. and the troops, they're not allowed to do that. Or they could just blow off and just laugh. And, and we appreciate them because we see the conditions they're living under, the sacrifices they've made. I really would get mad um, during the Iraq war when people here would talk about that support our troops. And it's like, you're full of shit. You don't support our troops. If you supported our troops, you'd pay $10 a year more in taxes so they would have a decent hospital. You know what I hated in Iraq? They have to buy their own body armor. How fucked up is that? So, so don't sit here and tell me you support the troops. Buy a soldier a bulletproof vest. They cost like 500 bucks. Buy him one. You know, but nobody knows that because nobody goes over there. Nobody sees what they put up with on a day. And, and I'm talking about their day-to-day life was hard. You're in a culture that's completely different, completely different. Now, as a comic, it was fascinating to me because I got to see these cultures. Now, I'm not talking about Iraq because that was a war during wartime. But when we would go to Kuwait, or Oman or Greenland or some you know some crazy place like that you see I got to see these different cultures they would let us play with their toys which was fun you know like I got to drive a Hummer when they were only to the military we were in um somewhere in Central America I think we were in Honduras and these guys are like yo man we got these trucks like you can drive over anything you could drive through a river and I'm and I'm a car guy I'm like yeah like can I drive one they're like yeah come on let's go and you 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 know I so I got to off-road a Hummer in Honduras <laughs> you know that and and yeah an absolute love and respect um I've learned some of the culture of the military the the competitive culture between branches is so deep and yet such a rich vein for comedy and they love it when you make fun of the other branches and stuff. Love the USO. Um, super respect for the military. Last comic standing. Um, my introduction to America. That's what it was. Uh, when we started it, I remember Jay saying to us, when we got to the Jay final, Moore. Yeah, when we got to the final 10 and we were about to go on TV, Jay was like, listen, you're about to go on network television every week. And if you don't at least triple your income at the end of this, that's your fault, <laughs> you know? And he was right. Um, it was a fraternity. I always saw it as a fraternity type atmosphere. Like we were the, the pledges and he was in the fraternity. Jay used to fuck with us all the time. He used to fuck with us every week. <laughs> um, we, de- we developed bonds, me and Hefron. Me and Hef started out together. We were roommates. John Heffron. Yeah, me, we were roommates at the audition in Vegas. And we ended up on stage next to each other in the fi- at the final two. And Hef leaned over to me and he said, well, we made the whole run. And I didn't think about it until that moment. And I was like, wow, that's right. We started together and we finished together. And he won that one. That was season two. And being the runner up on a reality show is like the worst position because there's three of us up there there's me him and gary goldman and they're like ladies and gentlemen coming in third gary goldman and the crowd like "Ah," right then ladies and gentlemen the winner of last comic standing john heffron Ah!" 
I'm just standing there now. And they're like, oh, yeah, and Alonzo, congratulations. Now beat it. Get off the stage, right? So it's that awkward moment. So I loved the fact that we came back to season three and I got to win one. And one of the I got to win it. And one of the reporters doing interviews afterwards, he summed it up. He said, so do you feel vindicated? And I was like, yeah. Like that was the exact feeling. Like, yeah, I won. You know, because, because I wanted to win. I wanted to win. Um, still friends with everyone I did the show with. We had some great times. And if you were there, which you were, if you just walked in and watched, you'd have thought, oh, so this show is 10 comics versus the producers. <laughs> because that's where the fights were. The fights were always with the producers. That's trying, what always got me in trouble because I was get, balancing both right. sides. Producers trying to get us to fight each other. <laughs> And comics don't like we're, we're, you know, like we, we already live together. We've done comedy condos and shit like that. Like we're not going to, you know, Kathleen had it great. Kathleen said, listen, we're not fuck fight or walk. Like that's not us. Like we, we have a talent here. Like that's what we want. We're, they could, they'd be like, you're boring. I'd be laying on the couch reading. And it's like, yeah, cause I'm not like Todd Glass is funny in the living room. Because that's Todd's personality. Todd is is a, you know high energy and did you ever think or you you know and that and Todd, but me I'm boring in the living room. I'm reading in the living room. Now you put me on stage, I go to work, but I got no living room funny, and they they didn't like that. You know, so I had a good experience with Last Comic Standing. It's it's obviously. You're, you were involved with the show longer than me, deeper than me. Produced it for seven years. The show was was trashed by a lot of people. Everyone talked about it being rigged. I was like, look, if it's rigged, nobody came to me. Okay, I won. I don't have any connection to anybody here that, that would necessarily rig it in my favor. And I said, and the other thing is, it's not like NBC ever had a vested interest in a winner. They never took a winner and said, here's your sitcom. So it was like, so if it's rigged, I don't know what they're getting out of it. I mean, yeah, obviously there's casting involved and there's this and that, the other, but I never, you know, I was never privy to the rigging. I wish I had been because then I wouldn't have had to work so hard or worry about it. If I knew ahead of time, I could have taken it easy. (laughs) My whole uh, thing on the show was survive till next, survive through Tuesday. Because every Tuesday someone got kicked off. So I was like, don't get fired on Tuesday. And every week you don't get fired. And then you look up and like, I won. I never got fired. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow. Um, Getting my deal in Montreal was one. Winning last comic standing was another. You know, I had one of them that I'm always going to remember. One of them was yesterday. In hosting the the uh, hosting the Just for Laughs Awards, and just to let the audience know how fate is such an amazing thing in your personal life and your professional life, Maz Jabrani was right. supposed to host this show, and he had a family personal emergency, and he had to cancel. And they call Alonzo to come up here. And he says yes. And that instance where something bad happens to somebody else now, before he mentions this, creates one of his proudest moments in show business. Right. And 
and um, well, I'll explain why afterwards. I'll explain the moment. And I'll explain why it's such a proud moment. So I'm hosting the show. There's no script to hosting this show. So Kenya Barris gets award. Kenya Barris wins the Comedy Writer of the Year. He's created this show called Blackish. It's a huge hit, blah, blah, blah. So as a joke, when he's after he sits down, I'm like, you know, they got to be a role for a brother as a security guard on Blackish, right? So now in my head, this kind of becomes a theme. So Ali Wong wins uh, Best Up and Coming Comic. Ali's like five feet, 100 pounds. I'm like, Ali, you know, when you become famous, you're going to need a security guard. Right? <laughs> and then um, <laughs> um, Fergus, Craig Ferguson gets an award. And I'm like, man, Craig, 10 years on TV, not one sketch needed a security guard, right? So now I'm in, and the crowd's in on it. Every joke, you know, Judd Apatow uh, presents no no security guards in the movie. Craig, Craig Robinson, you <laughs> Craig the security job, you know. Um, um, Jim Carrey, liar, liar, you had a bailiff security guard by another name, right? So Trevor, finally comes up, Trevor Noah gets, and Trevor's giving this heartfelt speech and it's very emotional about coming from South Africa he he did a line about you know we had to get freedom before we got freedom of speech you know and so on and he's like and my father was killed by a security guard <laughs> and uh, so he sits down so I like Trevor it was a beautiful speech and if they ever do the biography right and the crowd just loses it because cause the crowd knows. They, I love it because it's all comics in the crowd, so they know the joke. So the joke, like if you ever do the biography and you need someone to play the security guard, right? But the reason I felt, well, besides the fact that everybody went, like Trevor lost it laughing at that. Jim Carrey lost it. But, but so besides the fact that I made my peers laugh that hard, my favorite thing about comedy is the creativity. I absolutely love the creativity and comedy in the moment. My favorite moment is a joke that's not going to be funny any other moment, but it's perfect at that moment. And that was that joke. And I did it in that room in front of everybody in a bit like, like people came up to me afterwards and they were like, man, that was, and it was, that, that was pure comedy, you know, and see, there's a lot of stuff in our business, right? I'm in that room, you know, Jim Carrey has more money than he can count, you know, uh, Judd Apatow, you know, multimillionaire, Craig Ferguson, world famous, Trevor Noah, you know, blah, blah, blah. But none of that matters when you're a comic, when you're just in that moment being funny. We're all just a comic. It could be an open micer or it can be a world famous multimillionaire or any of us in between. And, you know, I joke, I've taken my career firmly to the middle. <laughs> I am solidly in the middle, but... It was a perfect moment, and that's what I remember. That that's so. That's one thing. That that's one of my proudest moments. Um, there was a moment on Last Comic Standing. My dad, who, like I told you, stoic, blah blah blah, just don't doesn't show emotion and stuff. Um, he happened to be in L.A. on other business. And you guys brought him to the show. You you sent the limo, picked him up, and brought him to the show. And I didn't see it when I was on stage, but I saw it when the show aired. There was a moment, I'm in the semifinals, and there's a tear coming out of his eye. 
and my dad is one that I could count the times he said I love you to me. But that moment was so amazing. And everyone said to me, they said, man, if you had access to Oprah, they said, if you told Oprah that you're a recovering drug addict, you were on crack, blah, 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 and this is your dad watching you on Last Comic Standing with a tear in his eye, and I'm tearing up now just thinking about it. They said, Oprah would have made you a star. Oprah would have just opened the floodgates, and I was like, yeah, but I had the wrong publicist. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a a moment. I got to, I did a Mediterranean cruise and I got to take my mom and my mom got to see Europe, something she's wanted to do all her life. And, um, that was a, you know, that's when comedy is great. And, and again, I told you my mom with her jokes, right? So I took her to Europe and she said all her life she wanted to go to Europe. And my dad was like, I've already been to Europe. And she's like, that was world war two. <laughs> you know, it's changed since then. <laughs> you know? Your yeah. biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Oh, wow. Um, well, coming in second on Last Comic Standing drove me to do better and win season three. I don't know if that was one of my biggest disappointments, but I was disappointed. And that's no disrespect to, to John because Hef, I knew Hef won. When I saw his set, I was like, man, he did a killer job. But anyway, um, that's a tough one because I don't hang on. You know, in the moment, the disappointments are horrible, and then you do it again. And then you do it, you get another set. So I can't think of one of those offhand. I mean, I was disappointed in, you know, um, in not getting the show. You know, you, that's what I want. I want I want the show. I want a job again. I want to be on TV on a regular basis. So recently I was up for a, a uh, spot on a talk show and it would have been great and it was right in my lane of what I do, you know, social commentary I know the on show. a daily basis. And I was one of the, one of the final, they were doing what they call chemistry tests where they try this person with that person. It's, and they really liked me and... I didn't get it. And I, and I was disappointed because it was, you know, there are certain jobs that I know I could do. And that's one I could know I could do. Like when you go up for acting, if I go up against real actors, people who act all the time, I'm like, I I can't do it the way you can when they, they can draw on the emotions and, and do things that I can't do. Some comics can, I'm not one of them, but, but this was a situation where I knew I could do it and I won't really wanted to do it to show that I could do that. And um, so I was I was disappointed about that. But then you you bounce back because the answer is no more than it's yes. And I think I've been in the business long enough now to know that I've been in the business long enough to enjoy other people's success. I think I'm happier for Tiffany Haddish becoming a movie star than Tiffany Haddish. I love Tiff. Watching what's happening with her excites the hell out of me. Um, so and people don't realize they just think oh this is happens overnight yeah she, she's, she's been doing it she actually long, started years? she started monday she started <laughs> monday and then they shot girl trip on thursday and released it friday so she did pretty good for herself you know that i mean that's right that's the way it looks so i'll give you a funniest disappointment uh i try for voiceovers i get a few here and there but not 
everyone's like, man, your voice, you should work all the time. But for a number of reasons, it's a tough business. So I'm up to do this commercial for Guinness. And I had to read like one line, right? And, and they liked it. And I go in, they call me into the studio and they're like, okay, read the script. And I'm like, script? I'm like, no one sent you script? Like, no, I thought it was just this line. They're like, no. So they, it's a one page story about this guy who, it was a white guy who liked jazz and went to Harlem in like the early 1900s and found these jazz musicians and got them recorded. You know, he was an Irish guy. That's the connection to Guinness. Blah, blah. And it's a really dramatic story. So I'm reading it and I don't realize they're listening to me read. And, and they were like, that was perfect. Like, that's exactly what we want. But so now I'm thinking I'm going to get a this is big. I'm getting a Guinness ad, a Guinness ad campaign. It's a lot of money and it's great. And I just got to do this beer story, right? And then a couple of days later, my voiceover agent calls. I'm like, well, they went with Danny Glover. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> and I, if I ever meet him, I'm going to be like, man, you got lethal weapon money. You did not need, I need this shit. You understand? You got lethal weapon money. You ain't need Guinness beer money. I need, how are you going to do that to a brother? Took my Guinness beer money. Man. Last question. <laughs> what advice do you have for the young comedian who, or the young person anywhere in any profession that might be struggling with alcohol or addiction, or working in a job that they don't want to do, and to take control back and then work through and navigate through the business and have the kind of career that you have? You, took, you said a beautiful thing in there. Take control back. You have to learn to not take control back. If you have a problem with, with drugs and alcohol or whatever, you have to, we call it surrender, admitting, whatever. You have to admit that there's a problem that you can't conquer. This is one problem that you can't conquer head on. Find some help, whatever that help may be, whatever recovery program, rehab, or whatever, and give yourself a chance. That's all you gotta, you gotta give yourself a chance. Like I say, I found my dream in a career completely different than anything I thought of going in, you know? I don't know when they come in, like I don't know what your your dream is, but you gotta give yourself a chance. And the only way you're gonna give yourself a chance is saying, man, I got a problem and I need help. You got, you have to do that. You can't, this because like I said, you're you're drinking every day to stop drinking. That's your best solution to stop to, to not drink is, man, I'm going to get drunk today, but tomorrow I'm going to stop drinking. Tomorrow never comes. You know, that's so if you're a person young, old or anywhere in between who has that problem, if you're a young person trying to get in a career like I tried to get in the comedy and so on, you have to do it. You know, when I, when I started comedy, I started late. I was 30. Right? It's a late start in the business. And a friend who happened to be a therapist, but she said, 10 years from now, you can either have been a comic for 10 years or have wanted to be a comic for 10 years. That was a, that was a, that meant that that was a big statement. So you got to try it and it may or may not work. You know, um, what do Kenya, they say Kenya Barris was blackish was his 19th pilot or some crazy number like that, you know, but yeah, you have to, uh, you have to try and, and. This came from, it's a different world for me. Like I said, I come from a blue collar family background where you go to school and get a job. You know, if, like if I had worked my whole career at Lockheed, that would have been good enough. 
you know, so, so you have to try if it's something completely different, just give it a shot. Wow. Alonzo Bowen, let me tell you something. You are in the top percentage of podcasts I've ever done, and you are not <laughs> anywhere near firmly implanted in the middle. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. Thank you. We got a long history. We got a long history. You said something to me once that I took as a high compliment because I came to you about my career and management and whatever. It was, I don't know, 2000 or whenever it was, 01. And we didn't work together. And and then a few years later, you came to me and said, I was wrong. Or like, I missed that one or something like that. And That's I took that as a... Uh, as a high compliment so i always want to let an artist know when i made a decision that i never want to have regrets and one of my greatest regrets of not working with you is the fact of you are one of the most unbelievably kind and generous and nice people in the business and sometimes i thought to myself wow I could have spent my time fighting and spitting blood for somebody who is a wonderful man as opposed to somebody or a group of people who might not have been that way. And that's probably something that I was alluding to because you've proven that you can do it, you're talented, you're funny, and you are nowhere near the middle. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Barry. It was great. All right. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay. I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on. Always a great listen. Five stars by Joel thirty dollar sign, July thirtieth, two thousand seventeen. I say this without hyperbole. Barry Katz is a big reason why I'm doing comedy today. I had always dabbled in it, but listened to Barry talk about the nuts and bolts of the business on this podcast and Jay Moore's and is really what inspired me to commit to comedy as a craft and not just a hobby. I haven't arrived yet, but I'm performing in many of the best clubs in New York City because of his advice. A great podcast for anyone interested in success in business in general. Highly recommended. Thank you so much, Joel. $30 sign. I wish you the best of luck, and you are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. 
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.